It is. Uh, there's no doubt. It's it's very close to to the flying you see in Alaska, uh, and northern part of Canada as well. Uh, except for one small detail, I guess you could say, and and that's again the distances. I mean, if I leave town here and I'm not able to land here, that closest airport is uh, is 80 miles north, and there is no road between the towns here. So uh, if you fly 10 minutes out, you are really out of the nature. Many places in Alaska, if you fly around Anchorage and uh, more settled areas, you will always have roads, you will always have easy uh, help. I guess you could say someone can always come and help you and pick you up. Where up here you are quite far away, so the, the, the best thing is actually being picked up by boats. Of course, there is a lot of boats up here, but no, no roads. <laughs> and uh, weather-wise, I think uh, Alaska and Greenland would probably be much the same. Uh, but it, it's rare you get stuck in weather, at least uh, if the forecast is good. It's rare it changes so so, mad, uh, so so drastically, so you won't be able to come home. The thing you see sometimes is that the wind picks more up than it's supposed to be, or uh, it comes late or comes earlier, the weather. But, but the big forecasts when you look at them are very precise today. All right, welcome back everybody to the Stoke Collective episode number five. I'm your host, Maxime Compagnon. First of all, I really want to wish you and your family a Happy New Year 2021. I also want to thank you for your support and kind messages during the last month. It really helps me and um, this is also the reason why I do TSC, get in contact with you. In 2021, I will continue with the podcast and we also have some new projects related to TSC I will probably talk about in the following month. Also, in the last podcast, I must say I wasn't credible on one point when I talked about the minimum safe altitude in Germany. I said 800 feet, which is obviously not the case. In Germany, we have the standardized European rules of the air, the SERA rules, which is, of course, 500 feet AGL as soon as you're not flying over a city or a village. Our guest today is René Pedersen from Greenland. Born and raised in Nuuk, the capital of Greenland, René studied in Denmark and has been working as a helicopter mechanic for the last 30 years. He's logged two and a half to three thousand hours on helicopters as a left seat flight mechanic. And he is the only owner of a bush plane in Greenland which is actually a just aircraft superstore. So let's get to the podcast and learn about what it takes to fly, mostly alone, in Greenland, or last European frontier. Hi, René. It's nice to, to have you on the podcast. Hello, Maxime. Thank you. Thanks. Can you please say something? Something. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's getting good. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, can you please uh, tell me real quick so who you are, where you're coming from, or where do you live, and, and what do you do? And then we'll get deeply into it later when we speak together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, uh, my name is uh, René Peterson. I live in uh, Nuuk, Greenland, and I'm actually raised, and I'm not born in Nuuk, but I'm born in Greenland, uh, raised and born in Greenland, I guess. I work as a, uh, as an aircraft mechanic or engineer on, uh, on helicopters, basically, or mostly 90% of the time on helicopters, mm -hmm. uh, all, the, all the way down to the real small helicopters up to, to large helicopters. I've uh, been doing that for almost 30 years. Uh, next month, actually, is 30 years. So I started quite young, when I was 18. Wow. Uh, and uh, I haven't flown uh, more than, what, 13, 13 years approximately. 
uh, personally, but uh, we sat for many years on a left-hand seat in a helicopter because we operate so far up north and uh, far from everything. So we were kind of flying engineers uh, for many years, and that's actually where the dream of uh, of flying myself came in to the world. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I enjoy flying up here. It's a beautiful place to fly. You should come someday cool. and try it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely yeah. want to do that. So we'll have we'll have yeah. to do to talk about that deeply. So yeah. so basically, um, so so you're born and raised in Nook, and I assume you you had to go maybe somewhere to to study to be a mechanic, and uh, so how, especially uh, an aircraft mechanic. So so. What was that part of, of, of your life? Is Where was it? Uh, yeah, it's true, because there, no, uh, there is no aviation school in Greenland. So, uh, But aviation is uh, it's partly, uh, it's, well, it's not partly, it's a part of the Danish uh, authorities. So its uh, registration is the same as Danish registered airplanes. So the schools are also in Denmark. So I went mm. to school in Denmark for four and a half years on and off as an apprentice. So you, you go to school for a couple of months, about two and a half months, and then you're back home for approximately half a year and then back to school. So all in all, I think it's uh, 70 weeks of school and then the rest of the time is, is practical. Mm -hmm. And then you get your basic license uh, after that, uh, after those four and a half years. And with the basic license, then you can then start building on uh, getting type ratings like you do as a pilot uh, and uh, gain your experience and you can get uh, more ratings, uh, giving you the possibilities to re release machines or run big inspections and stuff like that. Uh -huh. So uh, I got my first uh, helicopter license just uh, after I finished uh, as a young kid, I guess. <laughs> Uh, for for a fairly small helicopter at the time, uh, but uh, but but it was actually uh, 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 in the company we called it a lounge customer deal. So we were the first customer in the world to receive this type of helicopter. It was a Bell 407. I don't know if uh, if you're into helicopters, but uh, I, I I try uh, to to come in more and more because I just love them as well. And uh, I must yeah. <laughs> I must say I. I did some some break over the last years uh, about helicopter types, yeah. but I really want to to come into it because it's there are yeah. so beautiful flying machines. It's just okay. It's uh, it's it's very much. I mean, if you look at the way you fly helicopters up here in Greenland, it's very much the same as we do with the small planes here. VFR, uh, dodging the weather, flying around it, and. Uh, Uh, so there is not much IFR flying up here in Greenland, at least with helicopters, because uh, the helicopters they use are used for the settlement flying, small small towns and small settlements, meaning that you don't have any fancy equipment to fly into these settlements. So this is basic uh, basic VFR flying with mm -hmm. GPS, and and this is I guess much much the same as we do with these small planes here. True. Uh, so the the flying itself, of course, is a little bit different. The the machines to fly are quite different to fly. Uh, it's very weird to fly very slow in a helicopter it always have this feeling that you're kind of stalling but uh, i guess it, it never does <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> i assume yes so you had when yeah. when when you went to to denmark to study you always had the goal to come back to greenland yeah. and and work there yeah okay so the For the, the four and a half years you go to school, you go back and forth. I think all in all, it's I think it's 10 times. Some of the periods in school were fairly short and others were fairly long. Uh, so Denmark and Greenland is, is quite uh, quite connected, I guess you could say. They mm. are very close up. Uh, in my town in Nuuk, uh, half of the population are Danish-speaking, oh, at least half okay. of the population. So if you go further out to the coast and to the smaller towns and smaller cities, you'll see more, uh, I guess you would say, more Eskimo world mm. where you where you only speak Greenlandic uh, mm. uh, as a primary language. But in here in Nuuk, the, the primary language is almost Danish. Okay. 
So, I must yeah. say, I, I, I said a horrible, well, horrible, I hope not, you will tell me thing at the end of the podcast last time with Lars and Jan, and I said like, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, Greenland belongs to, to Denmark, and I was like, what? No, 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 they belong to themselves, and they don't, <laughs> <laughs> well, administratively for some stuff, and, and actually you gain a lot of independence, I've, I've read like 10 years ago, I think, was something like 2008, maybe a bit more now. Yeah, it was about two thousand eight. But it's true. In in some ways, it's it's not completely incorrect what you said to last, because I heard that it doesn't belong, but it's a yeah. very close part of Denmark, uh, mm. and we are a lot of the administration of Greenland is run by Denmark. Uh, for instance, uh, all the things with law, uh, police, and, uh, and search and rescue, even with helicopters up mm. here, and and many other things are run by the Danish uh, government. And Greenland is subsidized uh, by Denmark uh, yearly uh, with uh, with the uh, we call it block till school. It's uh, uh, yeah, it's a subsidization mm -hmm. from Denmark. So yeah. okay. So uh, in that way, Greenland is very very close connected to Denmark. Okay, and so you so as born in 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 Resinuk, so you learned both languages from the very young age or did you first uh, are your parents talking speaking uh, Greenlandic first with you and then you learned uh, Danish at school or how how did it work for you yeah again it's a little bit different from a place to place in Greenland Greenland is as you probably noticed I'm mean, quite big so if you look at Nuke specifically where where I live it's uh, in the school you at the time when I went to school you actually had uh, two separate classes and so you had Danish speaking classes and you had Greenlandic speaking classes and uh, and as a young kid I went to the Greenlandic speaking classes meaning that uh, I actually uh, couldn't speak Danish until I was somewhere between 10 and 12 years old Ah. Uh, so my my primary language have been uh, Greenlandic from from when I was born, uh, and then Danish came on top of that, mm -hmm. and uh, English is also very uh, very used here in Greenland. So I actually speak three languages. So okay. which is which is quite normal actually in yeah. in Nuka. When you look at my colleagues, and most of my colleagues are uh, a triple language speaker. Okay. So yeah. Yeah, then and we have this is both from the pilot side and the, and the mechanic side, mm. actually. So yeah, yeah, we have we have to. So we are very similar. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. well, I, I it's different. I I had to learn English uh, at school and uh, and then German after that. But uh, yeah, so yeah, cool. And um, so you said coming back after studying, so you started to work as a mechanic uh, in in Nuuk on helicopters. And I, I didn't get it properly. So you got as well a helicopter pilot license parallel to be a mechanic or or because I didn't get it correctly, maybe? No, I don't have a pilot license for helicopters, but uh, as a mechanic, uh, uh, we we sat on the right hand, uh, left hand seat on a helicopter sure. a lot of the time. Uh, of course... Uh, Again, when you when you look around Greenland, it's it's very spread. Uh, the towns and settlements are, are far far from each other. And uh, at the time uh, when I finished as a mechanic, uh, I got a license on a helicopter who was who wasn't actually in Nuuk. It wasn't based where where I live. So we we traveled quite a lot. I'm I'm away at least three months per year out on the the coast, up and down the coast. Uh, wow. Uh, so. Uh, And and when we are many of the places at the time, at least it, it has changed a little bit uh, today. But at the time, we actually sat on the right hand uh, again, left hand seat. Uh, so uh, I think I've been sitting in a helicopter somewhere between two and a half thousand and three thousand hours, a lot more than I've been flying myself. Wow! <laughs> so I guess you could say a lot of the learning uh, with flying up in Greenland, I have learned as a mechanic sitting next to a pilot so uh, <laughs> yeah yeah and then be, i mean and all these hours building up and as you said flying a lot vfr i assume yeah. uh, it was the best training ever to start flying yourself with your own lsa aircraft absolutely uh, i mean uh, 
you kind of, uh, even my colleagues said it, you kind of had some learning already. I knew how to check the weather. I knew how to do basic uh, uh, navigation. I knew how to fly around mountains. And I knew how to, a lot of the things you, you learn by doing, I actually had already learned just by sitting next to and, and seeing mm. how things were done. So I guess uh, I guess you could say uh, I got some experience before even starting to fly myself <laughs> in in the flying community. So, uh, which is a good thing up here. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, definitely. One thing you ha- always have to battle up here is is the weather. So, uh, and learn to fly in this kind of weather is I think it's important and not just come from from the flight school and never seen in Greenland before and then mm. it's it, it can be harsh up here. Yeah, they was, call it hostile environment. Uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure. I I think last started to to talk a little bit about it last time, and and I wanted to ask you because I've read obviously many books about uh, pilots flying in Alaska, and mm. I assume be flying close to the Arctic Circle or above, uh, you have similar conditions to the guys flying in North Alaska maybe or you can correct me and then uh, yeah so i would really love to know more about what kind of weather you have or maybe some specific features because obviously i fly in the mountains in the alps but it's completely different to what you have i'm sure so so how that cold air maybe coming from the north is interacting with the sea sea air or i assume you have a lot of fog as well maybe so how does are all these parameters so working together so so and especially i assume so depending on the season it must be uh, quite special yeah it is uh, there is no doubt it's it's very close to to the flying you see in alaska uh, and northern part of canada as well uh, except for one small detail i guess you could say and and that's again the distances I mean, if I leave town here and I'm not able to land here, that closest airport is uh, is 80 miles north, and there is no road between the towns here. So uh, if you fly 10 minutes out, you are really out in the nature. Many places in Alaska, if you fly around Anchorage and uh, more settled areas, you will always have roads, you will always have easy uh, help. I guess you could say someone can always come and help you and pick you up where up here you are quite far away. So the, the, the best thing is actually being picked up by boats <laughs> because there is a lot of boats up here, but no, no roads. <laughs> and uh, weather-wise, I think Alaska and Greenland would probably be much the same. Uh, all the towns and settlements in Greenland are very close to the shore or the coast coastline, meaning, as, as you said, so we get a lot of fog during the, the summertime beautiful weather and then somewhere between five and seven o'clock at night the fog starts to come in and uh-huh. uh, this town here Nook, is is very close to the coastline yeah. so we get a lot of fog which is ca- quite unfortunate <laughs> uh, during the winter time we have uh, fairly short days because of twilight uh, dark month we just had the darkest day here at 21st like anyone else and uh, we get, uh, I mean, sunset and sunrise, we probably have uh, approximately five hours. And if you look at twilight, we have even shorter. So it, it's quite dark here during the winter time. Mm-hmm. So not much flying. Uh, so actually the first three years I had uh, my superstall, I had the same insurance period as you have on a boat. Huh? So when the boats were taken into the water around April and they opened their insurance, I did the same. I opened my insurance on my plane. And uh, when the boats were taken up around November, mm-hmm. I closed my insurance and took my plane inside. So my flying season is approximately from, from 1st of April to 1st of November. Okay. So it's, it's, uh, it's not that extremely long. But actually, I changed my insurance last year. So now I can fly all year round. But, but even that, there is a very few flying days here at this time of year. Okay. For, for instance, the last three days, it's been averaging about 60 knots in wind. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to ask you about the winds because Lars was also talking about that and said, like, ask René. Uh, he's very lucky to have a beautiful hangar for his bird. 
because yeah. uh, I, I assume if you land somewhere in Greenland and then like you really have to tie down your plane because they have some crazy oh, winds. The connection just got lost. Ah, okay. Ah, no, we're back. All right. <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah. So sorry for that. Yeah. I don't know which one was lost, <laughs> me and you or yeah. you. Yeah. No worries. So we uh, we were talking about the wind. I so you said sixty knots. Yeah, the last couple of days has been quite boring. A lot of snow, a lot of wind, and uh, we actually had uh, we had uh, plus oh sorry minus nine degrees just three days ago, and just twelve hours later it was plus nine. Huh? So it changed with uh, twenty two degrees in in uh, in twelve hours. Wow! And uh, everything there was snow became more or less waterfalls and very slippery outside. Wow. And this this happens uh, more or less once every year around this time of year because it's, it's not cold enough yet, but it's still uh, it's not, not warm either. So we, we get these high, low pressures with the warm weather coming in sometimes. Uh, so the, the weather right now from, from November, maybe even December until... At least uh, March is quite unstable. Okay. You have days where it's nice, but most of the time it's it's not flying weather. Uh, and and um, talking still talking about the weather. When if you plan, for example, a longer trip um, yes. for a few days with your bird, um, are now so so weather predictions pretty reliable? Can you do as on based on your experience? So, so is it something you can, uh, it's not always easy, but uh, pretty correctly or accurately, sorry, so, 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 so plan for your trip? Uh, the so weather forecast and the weather information today is, uh, is amazing what it's been compared to earlier. <laughs> uh, even the internet based like Windy and uh, our local uh weather forecasting here is really good and then besides that we have a med office we can call uh who, who looks at the weather online uh, with the fresh satellite pictures every i think it's every hour they get them or something so we have very up-to-date weather mm -hmm. but this is like uh, let's say it's the big weather it's the the area when you look at the completely local area for instance in the shore systems or in the towns here, you get some surprises still some days. Not not really, really big surprises, meaning that they were forecasting zero wind and it became 60. You don't get that kind of uh, 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 misjudgments, I guess you could say. But we, we get, uh, for instance, we get uh, Prop 40, that it's going to be fog during day uh, between 17 and 19, for instance. And sometimes it comes in much earlier or it comes in much later. Because mm -hmm. the fog is apparently, it's it's hard to predict exactly what time it's going to hit the town or hit the airport, I guess. So we have, a, even with our commercial flights, we have a lot of diversions where you stay in holding on top of the town and then you divert back to, to Sunderstrom, which is the main stations where all the the uh, the main uh, well, connection to the world, I guess you could say. Okay. Uh, so I have been uh, hit only once, actually. Uh, during all the years I've been flying, where 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 I couldn't get home, <laughs> oh. and that was uh, that was actually last year. I ended up uh, exactly actually it was the same situation I was just mentioning. There was a a forecast. There was fog coming in. Uh, I think it's at seventeen Zulu, seventeen hundred Zulu, mm -hmm. and I came home three hours earlier. And I, as I came around the corner up in town here, and I got in contact with the tower. They told me you have to hurry because the fog is almost all the way into town now, and uh, I couldn't hurry much more than I was already doing. So, when I came down to town and turned turned towards the airport, it actually closed down. Uh, I was less than a minute uh, too late, basically. Wow. Okay. So I ended up flying on top of the fog and looking downtown, and it was thick. The fog that was coming in, I could see I was bad chances for me coming down to to my town. So I called up the tower and flew three, uh, it's actually five miles to the north of town where I had a little landing strip. So I landed there and uh, took my phone and called up the tower and told her, well, I'm here at this position. So uh, please give me a call if the weather clears up and I'll come, come home. 
So uh, this is the good thing about having a, a phone when you're close to, I guess. Definitely. Uh, so, but I also carry a, a satellite phone, a Iridium phone, for the mm. same reason, actually. Uh, uh, but it, it's rare you get stuck in weather, at least uh, if the forecast is good. Mm-hmm. It's rare it changes so so mad uh, so so drastically, so you won't be able to come home. The thing you see sometimes is that the wind picks more up than it's supposed to be, or uh, it comes late or comes earlier. The weather, but but the big forecast when you look at them are very precise today. Fortunately, <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm I'm as currently looking at the map, so as you can imagine, okay. and yeah. uh, of course there are like thousands of fjords all around all around your place, and I assume. Yeah you play all around Nuke and so when you fly with your Superstall I think we'll come later as a, uh, back to the to the topic where you build a Superstall so so it, do you have spots like let, of course obviously in the west you have the ocean but um, yeah. do you have it doesn't really matter because if I look at the map uh, there are really many islands and fjords, and uh, so so. Do you have some some favorite spots where you fly, or because uh, if I look like more inland, so it looks like around I would say forty fifty kilometers, then then it's the ice cap. Yeah, so it's, it's coming it's fast. A, yeah, it's the ice cap is approximately forty nautical miles, so it's it's, it's eighty oh. eighty kilometers 80. or something like that, a little bit less. Uh, but if you go towards the east, as you look on the map, this is actually my favorite area, that, that part. And then further up north, at the end of the shore system, you can actually see Nuke Fjord system is uh, one of the largest uh, combined system, meaning that all connected the fjord system. Uh, so, uh, and if you go all the way north to the fjord system, all the way down to the uh, uh, south, and all the way to the east, this is primary the place i i play around hmm. uh, so i got uh, well, i don't know a couple of hundred miles uh in in radius or diameter to, to play in quite a huge it, area it's quite a huge area it's approximately the same size as uh, as denmark as last uh, place uh, flies in well wow. so, and but i have gone for longer trips uh, i have done been all the way down to south greenland uh, and I have also been all the way up to the northern part of Greenland, up at the Disco Island, it's called. Oh, really? All the way okay. up to Ilulissat, yeah, further up north up there. Uh, so, uh, and uh, there is a lot more to explore, and there is a lot more I like to see. I've, I've seen uh, probably 80% of Greenland's coastline in a helicopter, but not in my own. Well, not in my own plane. <laughs> oh. So I'm still missing the, the north uh, east Greenland is, is very hard to get to. I mean, you only mm. get to places like that if you somehow get there by work uh, mm. with helicopter twin or, or you're a scientist, geologist. Or, right. So far away yeah. from your place. Yeah, that that is very far away, yeah. But so I've, I've read uh, actually today that the extreme north of, of Greenland is pretty much free of, of ice and snow because they have a very, very dry weather there, so not yeah. allowing snowfalls. And uh, have, you, have you been already there, so for your work? or I've been uh, the furthest north I've been in uh, on the west coast of Greenland is, is above a place called Fjordbaluk, mm-hmm. which is the northernmost uh, inhabited place, I think, inhabited city or town or settlement in the world. And then on the east coast, uh, I used to work a lot on the east coast of Greenland. I used to work, as you, we call it, 30-30, 30 days on and 30 days off. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and at that time when I was working uh, 30-30, I spent a lot of time in a place called Constable Point. And from Constable Point, we had a a twin-engine helicopter called Build 222. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same as the owls, if if, if that's ah it. yeah 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 of course yeah, yeah. legend. So we we sat on I've uh, been sitting in that as mentioned earlier uh, on the left hand seat for for many hours, and all the way up to uh, a place called Denmark's Haven, and a little bit further than Denmark's Haven, approximately eighty degrees north on the east coast, and approximately 
almost 80 degrees north as well on the on the east coast or west coast wow. so um, so and and the top part of greenland when you look at the map that's the part i haven't been to yet okay so hopefully someday i'll come up and see that as well wow. but it's true i looked at the weather phenomenon and and the last long time uh, the northern part of greenland is very uh, the weather is very stable actually during uh, both the winter and the summer mm-hmm. it's stable in that sense that uh, the weather is uh, the high pressure up there so you have uh, you don't have much uh, really hard winds uh, during the middle of the the winter and the same during the middle of summer as well oh, okay so uh, would love to go up there someday to see it <laughs> so that would be that would be great to see that but, but it yeah but it's it's far north i mean when we talk about the furthest northern port part of Greenland, it's a place called uh, Cap Moyes Desop. It's actually the last, the most northern point mm-hmm. on on our globe before you reach North Pole. Yes. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, land based anyway. Yeah. And yeah. when when you fly on longer trips with with your Superstall, how do you manage your fuel stops? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I assume we should maybe start to now. Let's let's talk about the fuel stops and uh, because it's related to the landscape and where you stop. And then after that, let's let's talk about your airplane itself. Yeah, um, I got uh, I got f- approximately five hours endurance, uh, giving me almost 400 nautical miles, which is uh, which is quite good, good actually for a small plane like that. So I can read the, the the closest towns to Nuuk without any problem, and I even I can even divert all the way home just in case, mm-hmm. uh, it, at least in zero wind. Uh, uh, usually, when I go for further tri- longer trips, uh, if I don't have anyone with me, I actually always bring a, a jerry can or two mm-hmm. on the on the front seat as well. So I have for every jerry can I bring, I have an extra hour of flight. Okay. Which give me almost seven hours uh, endurance, basically. Uh, so uh, fuel is uh, is actually really easy to get around in Greenland as long as you don't run out gas. So if you run ah. no gas, there is fuel all the way up and down the coast because uh, every boat and every car is running on it. And yeah. w- when you talk about out gas, that's where the problem comes because mm. there is very few airports uh, in Greenland who actually sells out gas. So if you go further up north to a lily set and uh, even further up north, you can't even buy out gas anymore. So, uh, and that was actually one of the reasons uh, the choice came on, on on this machine with with a Rotax engine. Uh, even though I was a little bit skeptical about the Rotax in the beginning, I read a lot about them and uh, figured out that they are actually really good engines and they are yeah. very li- reliable engines. So. Uh, I was looking more at a classic Continental or classic Lycoming at the time. Okay. And do but, you have, uh, which Rotax do you have in your bird? I have the 912, the basic 912 ULS. Uh, okay. 100 horse. 100 horse, like same, same, same as uh, I. Yeah. 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 Uh, which is, uh, I mean, compared to the weight of, uh, you should, uh, you have the same, I guess, with yeah. the, with the Savage, uh, Compared to the weights, it's actually not a bad uh, power to weight ratio, so uh, it, it performs really well. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, obviously, you are most of the time flying at sea level. Uh, yeah, I've okay. You have, I think, the the highest mountain in Greenland is still around above ten or maybe thirteen thousand feet, something like that. It's but just around thirteen thousand. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. but but. Uh, like the 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 mountains around Nuuk, like how high are they? Do you have? I I assume you don't really need a turbo on your bird because no, no. The highest mountains we have, uh, the areas I've been flying is around seven thousand. Mm. Uh, so that's when you go f- directly north from Nuuk towards a place called Eluliset. Uh, you will pass mountains going up to seven seven thousand approximately. Okay. Uh, and this, uh, this, I mean, this engine takes seven thousand without any problem, I yes, guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not a problem. So no, it's not extremely high level flying uh, here as as you do. Uh, 
So you have to go to the east coast of Greenland to actually meet the, the mountains who are above 10,000. Oh, okay. So on the west coast, I think the, the highest are approximately seven to 8,000. And um, I, I want to come back a little bit to the uh, to the terrain and the, uh, the where you fly. Um, because looking and actually, I was almost astonished because I've, I, if I look at the satellite picture, you see, of course, a lot of water uh, yeah. on the land. And I've been flying in, in Scotland and, and Wales uh, some years ago. And I was amazed like how hard it was to find a spot, a green spot. And we were mostly landing on, on beaches and because it was the safest and the easiest way to land. How yeah. how is it for you? Because I've seen quite some pictures as well uh, in the mountains and uh, not only on 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 the uh, on the shore. Is it similar? Yeah, um, there is. When you have a there was one thing there is good about having a lot of mountains, and that you have a lot of uh, rivers actually, and a lot of the river banks uh, ah. are very well for for landing. So a lot of the the places I actually land are river beds, and uh, and close to rivers there is actually a lot of the time is is really flat. Uh, of course, in the beginning I was very very careful what I landed on. It had mm -hmm. to be a three or four hundred meter crash trip, or, or I wouldn't try. But uh, the more experience I gained, the the shorter the runways became, and uh, the more actually a little bit more uneven as well. Mm -hmm. But I've been quite surprised, uh, at least the last years here, how many places you can actually find if you if you begin to learn to look at the terrain. I use Google Maps and uh, the old classic Greenlandic maps a lot for exploring because the, the good thing about the old Greenlandic maps is they have this very bright green means that it's really flat and the darker oh. green means that it, it's a lot of grass and nature. And then you have the blacks and you have the whites and all that. But uh, so you kind of learn to look at specific places uh, uh, to to look for landing sites. And uh, the first year I maybe had uh, 10, 15 different landing sites, uh, a kind of very safe landing sites. And the next year I had uh, 40, and the wow. third year I had uh, 100. And I think I have passed uh, 200 landing places at this point here. Wow. On the fourth year, and so, uh, I, I, I'm sure all opened by yourself because you're the only one in Greenland having a bush plane, right? Yeah, I spend a lot of time practicing. Uh, there is a an old military base actually south of Nuke, just uh, 40 miles south of Nuke, where the Americans they built an emergency landing site during the World War Two, mm -hmm. and it's it's been abandoned for many years. But it's it's a long flat area where I have at least five or 600 meters, and I have uh, peace, I guess you could say. So I don't have an airport where a lot of planes are coming in. So in the in the first year, I actually took extra fuel with me and went down to Mahak and stayed there whole day long and just practiced takeoff and landing, takeoff and landings, and kind of put marks where I wanted to land and uh, to see how, how precise and how, how short I could do them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, I have a couple of hundred landings down here just practicing in the area. And I guess from now on, you, you kind of build on. Uh, so, uh, but I, I was, again, I was very careful in the beginning. I, I still am, of course, but uh, <laughs> but, we, but it's getting better. Yeah, yeah, we all have to be careful. I mean, especially if we are looking for new spots where you've, nobody was landing on them so it's, yeah. it's i mean it's the key yeah Definitely. i have a feeling very very often when i land and i uh, jump out my plane well this is not just the first plane who's landed here i think i'm the first person who's been here yeah <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes that's uh, <laughs> in your case yeah. it's most of the times like that yeah wow. so and yeah it's uh, Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, no worries. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, when you fly, do you do you have a file, a flight plan every time you go, you go out? I assume for safety, or 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 not? Is it? We we have flight plan, uh, and we actually have uh, flight following uh, as well. 
Okay. So there is a reporting system. You have to report every half an hour uh, with your position where you are. You can omit, omit that by uh, telling them if you, for instance, land in a certain position, you give them a predefined position, and then you give next call within a couple of hours or, or so. Uh, uh, I do use the flight following every time I, I fly longer periods, and I fly in areas where there is coverage. But a lot of the, the time when I fly on the eastern part of Nook, I uh, get out of coverage quite easily. So uh, mm. what I do is I give them latest call instead. So I'll give them a flight plan. I'll be in this area. I'll be landing at this position. And my next call is not going to be later than 17 okay. on, on the hour or something like that. So, yeah. Uh, so, But, uh, but in general, uh, only private flying is allowed not to have flight following. All the commercial flights is uh, is uh, have to have flight following. Okay. So uh, I guess I use flight following uh, more than 50% of the time. Mm. So, yeah. yeah and I mean, this is, again, another reason I have a satellite phone with me. So. Mm. Yeah, I was. Um, we can we can get into that. So so I wanted to ask you about safety gear. What you're what you're carrying with you? Because I I, I think it's extremely important as soon as you fly in remote areas, and even even where I live, where you there are really many people. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. but but. Um, but flying in the Alps, you know, it's like sometimes you you are in these high mountains and if you have a problem, you are far away from from safety actually. And uh yeah. and if the weather comes in then the the uh safety uh, helicopters they will really have problems to find you. So in your case it's like the worst you can find, I'm sure. So yeah. so what do you bring with you? You have a satellite phone, so so you said, but did you have some other yeah. stuff? Yeah, I have, uh, I almost have, I actually narrowed down my emergency equipment a little bit because I was, I think I was carrying a little bit too much, but I have around uh, 20 kilos still to this day, mm-hmm. including, uh, I have a weapon, of course, mm-hmm. to hungry polar bears and uh, reindeer and muskox. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask uh, you about animals and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we have quite a lot of uh, vegetation and animal, animals in my area here behind mm-hmm. me. So uh, I see reindeers more, more or less every time I fly. Uh, but uh, yeah, my safety equipment is very much based on uh, what you have in Alaska. So I kind of build my safety equipment up like they do in Alaska. And what we already have in, in our Greenland and our company, we have uh, polar equipment as well. So I kind of uh, took the best from both worlds and uh, put up... Uh, uh, emergency equipment for myself with a with a good solid tent with a good solid sleeping bag uh laying mattress and uh, mm. flares and uh, cooking equipment and uh, yeah, dry food so i just need to get bring some water or some snow to to melt it so i can live for at least uh, three days uh, on what i already bring and then uh, I, I can of course do some hunting as well if that's necessary so mm-hmm. I, i've looked in at, at safety very much uh before I had my first flight, I already had my emergency kit already ready, I guess you could say. So during the build, I, I built uh, my emergency kit as well. Uh, so this is something I take uh, quite serious uh, uh, with the emergency equipment. So uh, I think, uh, I don't know if it's 100% or 100% perfect, but I, I think it suits me for my needs very well. Mm. And uh, I will be able to bend a propeller or uh, get a flat tire basically anywhere and i will be able to survive until i get help uh, either by by a boat or walk to the coast or, or, or by a helicopter in worst case scenario or uh, so i should be able to stay for at least two or three days I, I i also think it's the most important you have to build your own safety pack where which you feel comfortable with yeah. And and know you will be able to use it and 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 uh and meet your goals with it if if you need to use it. Um yeah. totally. But I assume you had a lot of trainings about safety gear and safety procedures uh because of your work. I mean <laughs> Yeah. We actually have that. I mean we have all the way down to dinky drills and uh 
uh, Arctic survival and stuff like that. So uh, I, I work on the helicopters, uh, hoist operator as well, or the winds operator. So we have some training in that direction as well. So uh, so this is uh, very helpful, what I have gained from my job as well, from my hobby here, yeah. I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. And have, it's, it's a funny question because... Um, I didn't see you wearing a helmet when you fly, and uh, I just got one for me. Uh, I've seen you wearing one when you were having some, I think, hoist trainings with the helicopter. So, well, I <laughs> why not? <laughs> But actually, that, it's a very fair question, and it's very true, because I have been following all the forums, back country pilot and a lot of other places, where helmet has been a long discussion. And I've been looking at helmets for I don't know how, how long time. <laughs> ah. uh, and I noticed you had the MSA Gallet. Yeah. I have the same, uh, a little bit different version uh, uh, for hoist operation. 250. And I'm I actually, assume. yeah, yeah, I have the 250. Yeah. I actually, the plan is actually the next season I'm going to start wearing it, trying to, to learn to use it because I think it's just a bad habit not having it. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, it is definitely one of the things that can save you. Mm. Uh, and you hear about and you read about uh, these types of machines, uh, truss construction machines. They they survive the crash, but you don't cause you hit your head uh, yeah. too hard on something. But um, so it is a very good thing. There is a lot of focus on that area. So I will be uh, wearing helmet in the future as well. Cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I I hope the more we are, then it will push other people to to do the same. As uh, yeah. I think especially in the type of flying we're doing, um, yeah. can always happen. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm landing on riverbeds as well quite a lot. And even if we always make a, a, a recon pass, like at, sometimes you don't see a, a piece of wood or a specific rock and then, yeah, and you could flip over and then there's a high risk to, to that your head hit some part of the the fuselage inside so uh, yeah especially in no, my it, case it, so uh, yeah yeah no it's a very good thing there is a lot of focus on that i mean and in the helicopter world where i've been living for many years as a mechanic I, I, you don't see any pilots not wearing a helmet mm. it's a it, it, you have to have a helmet and everyone wears one so uh, it is correct to think the same way in bush flying as well because Uh, and bush flying is at least as much dangerous as flying a helicopter or anything else, basically. Mm. Probably in, in some cases uh, more dangerous, I guess. Yeah, yeah so... Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I know quite some so, uh, a few guys flying in, in France in, uh, in the mountains, and they fly nice old... Airplanes, you know, like like uh, Jodels and stuff. So mm -hmm. they are they are really beautiful planes, but some of them they still have like really traditional seat belts. They even don't have shoulder seat belts yeah. on these planes, and and they fly in the mountains uh, on on really steep slopes. Uh, we have in France, and and I'm just like always when I see that and I think like okay you have an issue or you have to make a safety landing somewhere then you will always hit the cockpit every time with your head yeah okay yeah so um so I think most of our birds like if you look I mean on mine it's standard all these birds they all have shoulder belts and uh, four points it's it's okay but Yeah. But still, on all the ones, I, I just don't understand how they can fly these ones without a helmet or even why people are not uh, asking for F STCs maybe to, to bring shoulder belts on these airplanes. Yeah, it should be no problem in, mm -hmm. in theory. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. No, there's no doubt safety is, uh, is something you have to aim really high for. I mean... I guess don't, none of us are interested in not coming home. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, no, it's my son. He's asking uh. if he can take take our new car for to pick up pick up some uh, pizzas. I guess. Oh, 
<laughs> yeah, 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 you can do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm good. I already have my my Bavarian beer in my hand, and right, it's, yeah. uh, it's late enough. So <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought actually when I wrote to you earlier today, ah, maybe it's a little bit too early to have a beer. I'll, I'll wait until really. After. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's too bad. <laughs> cheers. Anyway, cheers, cheers. <laughs> yeah.